Welcome to the Gospel for Life podcast. We help churches make disciples. And now, here's your host, Daryl Dash. Welcome back to the Gospel for Life podcast. Today, we're kicking off our fourth season. I've got some great guests lined up, and I can't wait to talk to them. I'm really happy to talk to our first guest this season. His name is Jim Thompson, and Jim is the teaching and equipping pastor at Fellowship Greenville in Greenville, South Carolina. And he lectures widely on biblical theology. He's an armchair musician and songwriter. I'd like to hear more about that. Actually, I don't know much about his songwriting. He's also author of A King and His Kingdom, A Narrative Theology of Grace and Truth. And Jim has written a book with one of the best titles I've ever heard. It is called Sing Loud, Die Happy. I just love that. I've been quoting that all over the place. Sing Loud, Die Happy. And it's an exploration of how God's gift of song is meant to change us. One of the lines in the book, Jim writes, Jesus died so that sinners would be singers. I love that. So Jim, welcome to the podcast. Oh man, it's, it's an honor to be on here. So you are a songwriter, actually. If, where can somebody find your songs? Maybe oh, you know what to do. Dude, why you got to leave? <laughs> uh, so two places-ish. I get to help head up our summer internship program here, here at our church, which is usually about a dozen college students. And the first year we did it was 2013. And we just sing hymns so we don't have to do public domain stuff. But it's just like a couple people on the guitar and a couple guitars or like a, a couple dozen people and a couple guitars, but we started to record them and they sound so bad, but they also sound really fun. And so we called it the St. Cecilia and the Melody Makers, which she's the patron saint of music and the Roman Catholic Church. And so that's on Spotify. <clears throat> I write my own music under just Jim T period, but it's only on Bandcamp, which is like a artist streaming site. I need to put it on Spotify, but I'm too lazy. And I just write dumb, playful songs about my wife and my kids and my friends. And just, it's, that's just for me, but it made my author bio on the back of my book have that <laughs> reprinted. So that's why that's amazing. That's I don't good. want somebody to go listen to it. Actually. Let's talk about your book. It, you were writing about a subject that we take for granted. We do it as believers. I don't know a believer who doesn't sing. So how did you get him interested in actually exploring the importance of singing to the Christian faith? No, man, I think my first, how did you get into it is what you just said, dude. It's, if you're to ask seasoned faithful followers of Jesus, Hey, talk to me about the five most worshipful times in your life. And they're going to, they're going to tell you some really great stories. I'm just going to go ahead and roll the dice that singing is going to be all over that. And so I do think there's this visceral, spiritual, existential, like thing deep in our gut. That's entry level. Besides that, my personal deal is my mom is just this sweet, happy, soulful, joyful woman. And she's been in Christian ministry her whole adult life and my whole life. And my mom would just sing all the time. She'd sing, she'd make up like songs to Bible verses she was reading, which was fun in the King James 30 years ago. <laughs> she would sing about how my brother and I needed to chill out with each other. And so singing was just kind of like part of the air that I breathed in my childhood. And then this is actually a fun fact. When I went off to college, I actually played in a black gospel band with Stephen Furtick from Elevation Church. And wow. so we would go play in black churches. And like, before that, I was just like, punk rock rules the world, four chords, make it fast, make it go, make it loud. 
And I love that. And it was just like, put it in my veins. It was part of my formation and my spiritual formation. Cause some of those are really great bands with godly people in them. And then I learned like black gospel and I actually learned how music worked. And so singing and song were just there from very formative parts of my life. And through that journey, I became a hopefully Bible snob, Bible nerd, Bible guy. And I just, every morning I start my personal time of scripture reading with reading the Psalms. And so just the replete welcome to, Hey, come sing is it's just almost omnipresent. It's terrifying. And so the, not only the biblical commands, but the lack of attention to the biblical commands and the lack of attention to why those things are commanded. I basically, it, it was a self-indulgent project. I wrote the book that I wanted to read. And so <clears throat> as far as books on singing, I found a couple out there. There's a Lutheran guy who wrote one in the mid 20th century, but there wasn't just a lot on the idea of singing. Now there's music and worship and liturgy, but as far as books that are seeking to understand the function of singing and what it does in our lives and why it does what it does under God's sovereign and, and sweet wisdom, I just didn't find those things. And so I was like, all right, I got to scribble some stuff down here. I think the best books that are written are ones that authors want to read. So that's usually how we end up writing stuff like that. Yeah, man. And it's, it, I'm a part of a group that we have big hymns, sing-alongs here in the South, American South. And the amount of people that show up for those things is bonkers. It's just so many people, so many different denominations. And we just have these big sing-alongs and there's something so sweet about them. And we lower the bar of expectation of it's just fun and playful and we don't make it hyper liturgical or tied to a local church. Of course, I'm pro local church to the grave, but it's just people love that, that part of it, like the, the singing experience. There's something that we're drawn to there. And yeah, I just got to the point where I was like, oh, <clears throat> and obviously the other thing is when the COVID stuff hit, it's like, you felt the absence of it hard. And so I didn't start writing it. I had some ideas scribbled down like, oh, this will be a, a fun book. But I didn't start writing it until Christmas, 2020. Cause man, I was in. In the year 2020, I was feeling the ache of, oh, where did it go? We, I miss it now. So. So you've written a biblical theology book, really. Uh, a good chunk of the book is actually looking at scripture and uh, singing in the different parts of scripture. You go through the Hebrew scriptures, you go through the Psalms in particular, and you spend some time in the New Testament. And uh, it's really interesting, Jim, I'm, in my own study, I'm going through Deuteronomy right now. And you're getting right to the climax where Moses is exiting the scene. And right at the climatic point there, you've got the song, you've got Moses singing a song, which is really cool. I don't I think I've read Deuteronomy a number of times and it's, I've dismissed that the, his life is really ending with a song. So it's it just is. everywhere in scripture. It's amazing. That Deuteronomy song is hilarious because right before that, he sets up the today I set before you blessing and curse life and death, choose life that you might live. And then he gets to 32 and the prologue to the song is God going, Hey Moses, I'm going to teach you a song so that you can teach everybody else. And they'll remember it when they choose curse over blessing and death over life. And so song was supposed to be a part of the fabric of things, even when things weren't going well. And yeah, it's just, it's more places than you think when you're like actually pressing on scripture. Given that, why do you think I was reflecting on my own life and thinking how many sermons I've heard on song and how many have actually preached on singing. And I would have to say it's probably a handful. So given the fact that it's all over scripture, one of the most repeated commands in scripture, and it's on almost every page, 
Why have we paid so little attention to the subject? I think one reason why we've, it's been a little neglected is because we do it and we can feel that it's good when we do it. Like we can feel, hey, we're singing truth about Jesus. We're singing truth about the gospel. We're singing the truth about who we are as needy or who we are as our identity in Christ. We're singing these truths and we know that these truths are right. And melody married to poetry, married to theology, enters our souls in such a way where we're like, Dago, this is good. This is right. This is real. This is true. And so I think some of the neglect of the exploration has been due to the fact that it really is a functional beauty. But at the same time, when I think about that, to me, that's go explore it more rather than just let it sit on the surface of it works. It's that line in the Psalms that's a sung line, his greatness is unsearchable where you can see that and go, I don't have to worry about continuing to search if it's never reach the end of it. But I think David's talking about an invitation there. His greatness is unsearchable. So keep exploring, keep thinking, keep scratching at it. And so I do think there's a part of it where it is beautiful. It is wonderful and it does work. So if that's the case, why do we need to plummet the depths of why that's the case? So do you think that's one thing? Are Are you asking why the neglect? Yeah. Why do we assume it, but not really even teach about its importance? This might be wrong, but I think a lot of people trained in the teaching space aren't, sometimes aren't musically minded. You have, if you want to do Enneagram stuff, Enneagram threes and eights who are like achieve or challenge, or you have pastors and leaders who are like, okay, we've got to do community or we've got to make sure the liturgy's right, or we got to do these things. And sometimes they don't have the artistic poetic patience to sit and do music stuff. Um, Luther said we shouldn't ordain people to ministry unless they're musically trained. And I just wonder if there's a connection there and love that exploration pushed me to the joy of that stuff. But yeah, that's, I think that's a fun discussion. Why has it been perhaps so neglected? So I know you're somebody who's committed to preaching. You and I are part of a study group that gets together every year and works through a book of the Bible and talks about how to preach it. So I know in your role as a preacher and a teacher within your church and uh, talk to me about uh, the fact, I think a lot of preachers can think that what we need is more information and almost like what every Christian needs is an intellectual download of truth. Yeah. And I don't know good preachers know that actually preaching is a motive too, that It doesn't just deal with truth. It actually calls people to respond with their whole being. But yet there's something that music can do that's unique in the corporate gathering that I can think of last weekend, actually, as we gathered in a church. And part of the ministry that happened in my life happened during the singing that took place during the service. So what can singing do that maybe sometimes even preaching doesn't do consistently? Man, that's great. That's great. Obviously, our Lord sums up the total way that we should relate to him was love him with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love others as yourself. And so however you parse that out, heart, soul, mind, strength, I think it's, it's an invitation for all of us to be engaged with all of who God is and all of what God is doing as it's revealed in the gospel. And I do think just like you have different genres of literature in the Bible, you have the poetic of Psalms that you're supposed to feel deep in your gut. And you have the like didactic, if you will, of Leviticus, Deuteronomy epistles, where it's more like you're following, like, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Like you're following a a line of reasoning. So I think our teaching times in corporate worship are awesome. I love getting to teach the Bible at my church, 
But I do think there is something past our natural sensibilities, past our reasonability that reaches deep into our gut that song can touch, can get to. I also think it's that's the nature of corporate melody. There's a book by a gal named Jeanette Bicknell called A Philosophy of Singing. And she does great research on what is happening when we sing. If you sing with other people, you're breathing is the same and your heartbeats actually synchronize, which makes you like a collective single drum, which is pretty awesome. And they found at UC Berkeley, 220% more disease fighting proteins in the mouth when a choir sings and the louder they sing, the more literally disease fighting proteins they find in the mouth. But Bicknell is well of all, aware of all these things. And she talks about how one of the greatest activities that you can do as a human to create social bonds is sing with the same people regularly. And so we know at a level past the five senses that there's something happening when we sing together. And there's a unifying, bonding, covenantal, dare we say sacramental, holy, sweet, good thing that's happening when we sing together. And it's not that can't happen during the gospel being preached. It can't, it's not that it can't happen when you know, you're know you expositing a passage of scripture. It's that it seems as though those things were meant to be together, like the open word and the open mouth <laughs> to, to sing together and to then listen to the gospel wash over you from scripture. It's like they are supposed to be in tandem to encourage the saints. Mm. So yeah, I do think there are things that singing can do to us that, that the preached word can't do. And recognizing that I think is a good thing. And it doesn't downplay preaching. It it uplifts singing the gospel. And that, how well the two go together. I love that. That's really good. So Zephaniah 3, you highlight this in the book. I love the image. Yahweh, your God, is in your midst, a warrior who saves. He t will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love, and he will rejoice over you with singing. And you write, here we meet God, the singer. That's That blows my mind to think of. He doesn't need to sing. He doesn't have to sing. He created music. It's meant to serve him, and yet he sings. He is, this is Yahweh, the father of his covenant people, Israel, bellowing out a song. This is, it is mind-blowing to think about. What is the significance of God actually being a singer? Yeah, man. I, there, there's so much prophetic imagery in the back half of the Hebrew Bible that's just so rich and fun. And it's like Zephaniah knows he's saying something that is just out of reach, glorious, that <clears throat> here God sings. And here it's that he he's like quieting us with a soothing song of his love. He will quiet you with his love. But at the same verse, it's like, he will rejoice over you with singing. There are multiple Hebrew words for singing in this passage right here. And so I think Zephaniah knows that he's tapping into something that's really huge when he talks about God, the singer, and even the word right there for shout for joy or cry out is the Hebrew renah, which is like a resonating song. He's both quieting you with his love song and he's, it's a big, he, he's singing big time there. And so there's something about that seems to be bigger than Zephaniah's metaphor, I think. You know, the C.S. Lewis image of God singing the world or Ajlan singing the universes yes. into existence. I don't know if that was in Lewis's mind when he thought of that. Oh, and I also think him and old Tolkien probably got together and chatted about that because in Cimmerillion, Iluvatar does a similar thing as Aslan and sings uh, creation into, or sings the world into being. So there has to be, there has to be something there. And Yes, it's a metaphor, but I think it's for Zephaniah. I don't want to psychoanalyze Zephaniah. I think it's a metaphor, but it's a metaphor born out of a reality that Zephaniah knows. Like 
Song is supposed to be a part of our life so much, but from whence has that come? Like, what if it's a part of God's own life? And so perhaps that's why he attributes to God singing, like that he is a sing, singing God, the singer there. Hate to cherry pick through your book. There's so much there. I love the whole section on tracing, singing throughout the Bible, but I want to fast forward to Acts 16 and mm. the story there I love of Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi. And I've always read that story and focused on the miraculous release from prison, the reaction of the jailer, baptism, of course, so many things there. I don't think I've ever paid that much attention to the fact that they were singing hymns to God before they were released from prison. So why is it actually, why is that more than just a minor detail, but it's actually kind of key part of the story there? Yeah. Oh, I love it. Yeah. I think a really fun study that helps the Acts 16 question is to notice the juxtaposition of prayers and earthquakes throughout the Bible, because when they're singing, they have the earthquake and then that's how all the freedom happens. And it seems as though the prayers and the earthquakes in the rest of the Bible, man, even all the way to Revelation with the martyrs praying under the throne in Revelation 6, like the prayers that lead to divine earthquakes that cause some sort of rescuing activity from God, it seems as though those are sung prayers. And so what you have here is you have this little sub-narrative through different pictures like earthquakes. It's hinted at a few times throughout the Bible. And then, so when that happens in actuality in Acts 16, that singing is almost like this hinge on which that story swings a little bit because they're praying and they're singing. And it also, the context of it is a big deal. It's like, they're doing that in prison, which doesn't make any rational sense. Like we have to have our lights right and all this stuff cute on Sunday mornings, but they're in the, actually uh, Luke says that they're in the backest, deepest part of the jail. And so if what comes out of your mouth when you're in the hardest place in your life, when you're in the darkest place in your life, if what comes out of your mouth is singing, then that must mean that it has a grip on your heart as well. And so their singing is more than just a functional external mechanism that gets God to do a thing. It seems as though it was a very deep part of their lives, Paul and Silas. And I love that it sets the story in motion, if you will, pushes the snowball down the hill right there. John Stott in that passage says, with la lacerated backs and aching limbs, they sing, not groans, but songs came from their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. And no, no wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. Hmm. That's so good. It is. It's so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, I want to lead you maybe into dangerous territory, into the local church and singing and ask you a couple of questions. So here's a dangerous question. You can skirt it if you want to a little bit. Okay. Do you notice that there is a tendency sometimes for our corporate worship, depending on your tradition, to almost seem like a concert in a way? And you got the band on stage, you've got really well done produced music, and yet you look around and maybe the congregational singing isn't there. It's more just like an appreciation of what's taking place on the stage. And I'm sure there's a lot behind that. We could parse that. But as we look at the uh, singing within the local church, what advice would you give to pastors and music leaders on how to build a healthy singing culture in the church. Oh, wow, bro. We I'm not a worship leader at my church, so I know that there are different responsibilities that come along with that. And so I know that whether it's the cultural pressure or the pressure of that specific local congregation, I know that there's a lot of layers to that, <clears throat> but yeah, it's a very fragile question. 
I would say first and foremost that the language that we try to use is that we are about participatory rather than spectator worship. So I grew up as a Southern Baptist and my dad was a pastor and we would do what are they called responsive readings because we couldn't call it like the Roman Catholic liturgy stuff, but the responsive readings were in the back of the hymnal and it would be like <clears throat> one print was in bold and the worship leader, the music minister back in the day would read that. And then everybody else was supposed to read the other part. And I remember reading those and it feeling really dry, but now I see that there can be a beauty to that. If we read a creed together and a couple people on stage read it, and then the congregation responds. So that idea of participatory worship to say, Hey, we're in this together. We're singing together. Um, so explained liturgy is more helpful liturgy. So if you just do the thing and you don't explain it, it's less beautiful and it, it accomplishes the goal and, and not as a clear and healthy way. So that idea about saying, hey, we're called to sing together. This is participatory worship, and not spectator worship. So just saying it, I think is good. I also think that making sure this is why I'm a fan of old hymns. So this is where I might get in trouble. Old hymns were written with the melody in mind, with the human voice in mind. And since recording music is a big deal in the past hundred years, only a hundred years, like now instrumentation is the thing that's in mind, like the groove and the hook and the bass and which again, dude, I'm all about because I'm like a kind of a ghetto musician, but it's written with <clears throat> like the groove in mind and the melody can be more performative. It can go and swing and shrill and, and dance, which is cool and sounds really pretty, but that sometimes isn't as accessible for average singer Joe in the pew or the chair. And so that idea of singing songs that are melodically accessible that are theologically rich, telling people that we are called to sing to one another, Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. So explaining the liturgy of we are offering this to the Lord, we are doing this. Even the Hebrew word hallelujah is both a vertical expression of praise and a horizontal command. That means, hey, you, you praise him, praise the Lord. Um, and so saying things like that, hey, we're calling each other to sing and we're singing together. So worship leaders having explained liturgy, whether in the call to worship or in between a song, and obviously depending on your tradition, you can be more hymns heavy or more like pop worship heavy. But I think that there's plenty of room for different kind of expressiveness given the generation of your church or the cultural context or whatever. But uh, a, a Jesus-centered attentiveness that realizes that we're all called to participate and respond to who Jesus is. And we're to do so with accessible, normal melodies and not with these perform. Like nobody wants to sing a Steven Tyler song. You know, we're not getting up there. And so just simple, practical things I think are really, really helpful to explain how valuable singing is in God's economy for his people. Over the summer, we attended a church that is fairly well known and the entire service was really memorable. But one of the highlights of that was the singing was the congregational singing was just so strong. And our son, who's 23, walked away and he said, one of the things he really appreciated is guys his age were singing, not just a little bit, but they were belting it out. And he walked away, I think, strengthened in his faith because he looked around and found people like him are actually belting it out. And yeah. I, so it, it was cool because the ministry of the word was strong there, yeah. but there was something that happened just by watching other people sing and evidently really mean it that accomplished something in his life, which was pretty cool. Yeah. And you have to create a space where 
people want space to sing like they where they feel like it's okay to let it rip where they feel like it's normal to sing loud now that doesn't i don't know what that means about level of decibel but i think if your light show and your fog machines and all your stuff is so hyped that people are more allured to that and by that than the invitation to sing the gospel to me that feels a little backwards but if those things can like accent and nudge people to to lift up their voice i think that's great yeah it's tough to beat a space where the reverb is just right the room is just right you, maybe it's bouncing off the stained glass windows or whatever it's tough to beat a space where you just feel naturally invited to go hey i'm going to jump in on this thing it's a that can be a really sweet space yeah that's so good a good challenge for us so jim i love talking about habits i've written a couple of books that talk about habits and i love in the your book you write about the habit of singing and to quote you we might need to try some new habits of song so that we more fully receive and enjoy god's gift so talk to us about what are some habits we can develop i've never thought about habits of singing before or habits mm. of song what are some habits we can develop in our lives and churches Oh man. I mean, from a musical standpoint, like just the rock beat is four, four, and then the slow six, eight. So sing songs in different uh, time signatures, sing songs in different keys, <clears throat> sing songs in different genres. Like I love that, that the melody, but, or excuse me, that the lyric kind of betrays the melody and that old tune, Oh, the deep love of Jesus, which is a minor song and like a six, eight. And so sing minor songs and major songs sing songs that are very repetitive. I know some people who like to think that they have big theology brains. They don't like repetition. And I'm like, well, you can tell David to shut up in Psalm 136 and elsewhere. So sometimes you need to sing with repetition, but if that's all you sing, then that's a waste. You need to sing songs that are like kind of stretch your mind with the poetry and the thinking. You need to sing songs with a lot of dense. Jesus, I, my cross have taken as an old hymn that it's, man, that's got more words than First and Second Chronicles, that thing's eternal. You need to sing with people different outside of your generation, outside of your race or ethnicity. One of the fun things that I like to do is every once in a while, I'll go up to our student ministry on Sunday night with high schoolers and I'll play bass. And I like doing that because I like singing with people of a different generation than me. But also sometimes we sing songs there that we don't normally sing in like big church Sunday morning at my church. And so just finding ways to experience song distinctly and differently, I think can be really helpful. Well, and that another one is sing songs in a different size group. So when we do our thing with our summer interns, like we go in a back stairwell where it's super echoey and there's just like a dozen of us and we'll thunder out some old hymns and maybe some newer songs, but that's a rich, sweet time with zero production. And it's just a dozen ish people. But I think that makes it sweeter when we do gather on a Sunday morning and it's everybody and it's a, a bigger invitation and a bigger deal, which makes the stairwell even sweeter. And so finding different spaces to, to sing in, I think that helps. Here's a great illustration for that answer, <clears throat> that question. A song cannot be one sung note that never stops. It has to have layers and melodies and harmonies and notes and breaks and time signature. In the same way, learn the beauty of singing with different people who aren't like you outside of your generation, outside of your race and ethnicity, outside of your tradition, sing in different spaces. That'll give song the texture that it was meant to have, which I think will give it the value, the transformational value that God intended it to have. So just finding different spaces, different contexts. And if that means you got to change up your seat that you usually take on Sunday morning and do it. So yeah, there's a lot of fun options there, different habits.
And what do you hope will happen in somebody's life as a result of reading your book? I do hope and pray that the scriptures would be sweet to them and that Jesus would be just irresistibly wonderful to them to the point that they don't see singing as like a option at a buffet, but they just see it as this has to be part of the main course. There is a way that God's gift of song connects us to the divine life, connects us to each other that other things can't do. And so in Jesus' name, I pray that they would see singing as this tool that is irreplaceable in their walk of faith. I think in my preface, I might botch this because it's not in front of me. I said Jesus' earliest fathers, followers resolved, hey, we can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. And so I would be deeply honored, and I think God would be too, if we could similarly testify, hey, we can't help but sing about what we have seen and heard when we're paying attention to Christ. So yeah, just that they would have a cattle prod to melody, <laughs> to Jesus' melody, if they read it. Amen. I say a big amen to that. I want to ask you a couple personal questions as we wrap up here. What are you learning lately? It doesn't need to be from a book. Just what is God teaching you in your life and ministry these days? I think patience is, is a really powerful thing. This first way Paul talks about love in 1 Corinthians 13. And I think sometimes patience and the broad cultural idea of tolerance can get lumped together. But I think the biblical idea of patience offers us something that just generic cultural ideas of tolerance can't offer us. And that is the Greek word is makrothumia, long suffering. And so there's something about patience where it's stay put. The thing you want to learn, the thing you think you need is not at the flip of a light switch. It's not at the end of a simple equation. The thing that you think you need, Jim, or you think you want happens over time and it happens in my time, says the Lord. So whether it's parenting or some ministry context and shepherding context, I'm thinking about right now, I want to rush and fix things and I want to rush and go, Hey, this is what's right, good, real, and true and beautiful in the world. Just let's just be quiet and do it. Can we? I think that's prideful and I think that's presumptuous and not love is patient. And so I really sense that the God is teaching me those things right now both at my home with my wonderful wife and kids and here in God's home and God's family, where I get to shepherd and pastor, that just feels really forefront. Especially then on top of that, you add the hurried nature of our world makes it feel like everything has to be within reach at all times. All the good stuff has to be within reach. And I think love is patient, speaks a different word that my heart definitely needs to hear. That's really, yeah, that's profound. And what is encouraging you lately? Lots of books. Books are my friends. You can see behind me and I can see behind you. Just, just feel like I'm reading stuff lately that is terribly <clears throat> insightful and, and does things to both mind and heart that are really rich and fun. And I love talking about the stuff I read. And, um, and so that's been great to find some good books, <clears throat> whether that uh, Be Thou My Vision prayer book released by Gibson at Crossway. Dan Block's Covenant book. I'm reading a book called The Genesis of Gender by Abigail Favala. She's a Roman Catholic. She teaches at Notre Dame, which is excellent. Jeremy Treat's book, Seek First, about how the kingdom of God changes everything. I have a book by called Death to Deconstruction, Reclaiming Faithfulness as an Act of Rebellion by a pastor in Portland named Josh Porter that I'm really looking forward to. So I, I just feel like God has put a 
bunch of good books across my path lately that have been encouraging to the mind and encouraging to the heart. And hopefully that will yield a greater presence and grace and truth to people that I've called to love. So it's been encouraging. That's, I think ideas are my gateway drug of encouragement, like just the way God's wired me. And so that, that's felt good over the past few weeks, having some good stuff to, to chew on. And you've just given me some more books from my book list. So thank you for that. It's book snobs. It's the worst. Cause it's always like, Hey, have you read? Have you heard? What about this? This is coming up. So it's this unending task. And I just always want, I always want two extra hours every morning to postpone my responsibilities for the day and just feed my brain, heart, and soul. Alas, sometimes <laughs> that's not possible. No, a lot of days it isn't, but books are a blessing from God. That's for sure. Amen. Man. Final question. How can people find out more about you and your book? Yeah, I am at Jim Thompson 777 on most of the social media things. You can just Google the old sing loud, die happy. And if you want to attempt to stick it to Jeff Bezos, you can go to the, the publisher's website, which is Whipf in stock, W-I-P-F, Whipf in stock. And I think you might be able to actually get it cheaper there. But yeah, that's where you can find my most recent book. And you can listen to sermons that I get to preach at fellowshipgreenville.org. I'm grateful to minister God's word there on occasion. And so, yeah. Those are places where my work in ministry is out there. Thank you, Jim. It's a great book. I love the title and the content is just as good. So really appreciate being able to talk to you today. 